Chapter Four, Part A of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One. The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova Chapter 4 Part A Chapter 4 I receive the minor orders from the Patriarch of Venice. I get acquainted with Senator Malipiero, with Therese Eimer, with the niece of the curate, with Madame Orio, with Nanette and Martin, and with the Cavamacchia. I become a preacher. My adventure with Lucie at Pazian, a rendezvous on the third story. He comes from Padua, where he has completed his studies. Such were the words by which I was everywhere introduced, and which, the moment they were uttered, called upon me the silent observation of every young man of my age and condition, the compliments of all fathers, and the caresses of old women, as well as the kisses of a few who, although not old, were not sorry to be considered so for the sake of embracing a young man without impropriety. The curate of St. Samuel, the Abbe Giosello, presented me to Monsignor Correre, Patriarch of Venice, who gave me the tonsure, and who, four months afterwards, by special favor, admitted me to the four minor orders. No words could express the joy and the pride of my grandmother. Excellent masters were given to me to continue my studies, and M. Buffo chose the Abbe Schiavo to teach me a pure Italian style, especially poetry, for which I had a decided talent. I was very comfortably lodged with my brother Francois, who was studying theatrical architecture. My sister and my youngest brother were living with our grandam in a house of her own, in which it was her wish to die because her husband had there breathed his last. The house in which I dwelt was the same in which my father had died, and the rent of which my mother continued to pay. It was large and well furnished. Although Abbe Grimani was my chief protector, I seldom saw him, and I particularly attached myself to M. de Malipiero, to whom I had been presented by the curate Giosello. M. de Malipiero was a senator, who was unwilling, at seventy years of age, to attend any more to state affairs, and enjoyed a happy, sumptuous life in his mansion, surrounded every evening by a well-chosen party of ladies, who had all known how to make the best of their younger days, and of gentlemen who were always acquainted with the news of the town. He was a bachelor and wealthy, but, unfortunately, he had three or four times every year severe attacks of gout, which always left him crippled in some part or other of his body, 
so that all his person was disabled. His head, his lungs, and his stomach had alone escaped this cruel havoc. He was still a fine man, a great epicure, and a good judge of wine. His wit was keen, his knowledge of the world extensive, his eloquence worthy of a son of Venice, and he had that wisdom which must naturally belong to a senator who for forty years had had the management of public affairs, and to a man who has bid farewell to women after having possessed twenty mistresses, and only when he felt himself compelled to acknowledge that he could no longer be accepted by any woman. Although almost entirely crippled, he did not appear to be so when he was seated, when he talked, or when he was at the table. He had only one meal a day, and always took it alone because, being toothless and unable to eat otherwise than very slowly, he did not wish to hurry himself out of compliment to his guests, and would have been sorry to see them waiting for him. This feeling deprived him of the pleasure he would have enjoyed in entertaining at his board friendly and agreeable guests and caused great sorrow to his excellent cook. The first time I had the honor of being introduced to him by the curate, I opposed earnestly the reason which made him eat his meals in solitude, and I said that His Excellency had only to invite guests whose appetite was good enough to enable them to eat a double share. "'But where can I find such table companions?' he asked. "'It is rather a delicate matter,' I answered. "'But you must take your guests on trial, "'and after they have been found such as you wish them to be, "'the only difficulty will be to keep them as your guests "'without their being aware of the real cause of your preference.' for no respectable man could acknowledge that he enjoys the honor of sitting at your excellency's table only because he eats twice as much as any other man the senator understood the truth of my argument and asked the curate to bring me to dinner on the following day he found my practice even better than my theory and i became his daily guest this man, who had given up everything in life except his own self, fostered an amorous inclination in spite of his age and of his gout. He loved a young girl named Therese Eimer, the daughter of an actor residing near his mansion, her bedroom window being opposite to his own. This young girl, then in her seventeenth year, was pretty, whimsical, and a regular coquette. She was practicing music with a view to entering the theatrical profession, and by showing herself constantly at the window she had intoxicated the old senator, and was playing with him cruelly. She paid him a daily visit, but always escorted by her mother, a former actress, 
who had retired from the stage in order to work out her salvation, and who, as a matter of course, had made up her mind to combine the interests of heaven with the works of this world. She took her daughter to Mass every day, and compelled her to go to confession every week, but every afternoon she accompanied her in a visit to the amorous old man, the rage of whom frightened me when she refused them a kiss under the plea that she had performed her devotions in the morning, and that she could not reconcile herself to the idea of offending the God who was still dwelling in her. What a sight for a young man of fifteen like me, whom the old man admitted as the only and silent witness of these erotic scenes! The miserable mother applauded her daughter's reserve, and went so far as to lecture the elderly lover, who, in his turn, dared not refute her maxims, which savoured either too much or too little of Christianity, and resisted a very strong inclination to hurl at her head any object he had at hand. Anger would then take the place of lewd desires, and after they had retired he would comfort himself by exchanging with me philosophical considerations. Compelled to answer him, and not knowing well what to say, I ventured one day upon advising a marriage. He struck me with amazement when he answered that she refused to marry him from fear of drawing upon herself the hatred of his relatives. Then make her the offer of a large sum of money or a position. She says that she would not, even for a crown, commit a deadly sin. In that case, you must either take her by storm or banish her forever from your presence. I can do neither one nor the other. Physical as well as moral strength is deficient in me. Kill her, then. That will very likely be the case unless I die first. Indeed, I pity your excellency. Do you sometimes visit her? No, for I might fall in love with her and I would be miserable. You are right. Witnessing many such scenes and taking part in many similar conversations, I became an especial favorite with the old nobleman. I was invited to his evening assemblies, which were, as I have stated before, frequented by superannuated women and witty men. He told me that in this circle I would learn a science of greater import than Gassendi's philosophy, which I was then studying by his advice, instead of Aristotle's, which he turned into ridicule. He laid down some precepts for my conduct in these assemblies, explaining the necessity of my observing them, as there would be some wonder at a young man of my age being received at such parties. He ordered me never to open my lips, except to answer direct questions, and particularly enjoyed me never to pass an opinion on any subject, because at my age I could not be allowed to have any opinions. I faithfully followed his precepts, and obeyed his orders so well, that in a few days I had gained his esteem, 
and become the child of the house, as well as the favorite of all the ladies who visited him. In my character of a young and innocent ecclesiastic, they would ask me to accompany them in their visits to the convents where their daughters or their nieces were educated. I was at all hours received at their houses without even being announced. I was scolded if a week elapsed without my calling upon them, and when I went to the apartments reserved for the young ladies, they would run away, but the moment they saw that the intruder was only I, they would return at once, and their confidence was very charming to me. Before dinner, M. de Malipiero would often inquire from me what advantages were accruing to me from the welcome I received at the hands of the respectable ladies I had become acquainted with at his house, taking care to tell me, before I could have time to answer, that they were all endowed with the greatest virtue, and that I would give everybody a bad opinion of myself if I ever breathed one word of disparagement to the high reputation they all enjoyed. In this way, he would inculcate in me the wise precept of reserve and discretion. It was at the senator's house that I made the acquaintance of Madame Manzoni, the wife of a notary public, of whom I shall have to speak very often. This worthy lady inspired me with the deepest attachment, and she gave me the wisest advice. Had I followed it and profited by it, my life would not have been exposed to so many storms. It is true that in that case my life would not be worth writing. All these fine acquaintances amongst women who enjoyed the reputation of being high-bred ladies gave me a very natural desire to shine by my good looks and by the elegance of my dress. But my father confessor, as well as my grandmother, objected very strongly to this feeling of vanity. On one occasion, taking me apart, the curate told me, with honeyed words, that in the profession to which I had devoted myself, my thoughts ought to dwell upon the best means of being agreeable to God and not on pleasing the world by my fine appearance. He condemned my elaborate curls and the exquisite perfume of my pomatum. He said that the devil had got hold of me by the hair, that I would be excommunicated if I continued to take such care of it, and concluded by quoting for my benefit these words from an ecumenical council. Clericus qui nutrit coman anathema sit. I answered him with the names of several fashionable perfumed abbots who were not threatened with excommunication, who were not interfered with, although they wore four times as much powder as I did, for I only used a slight sprinkling, who perfumed their hair with a certain amber-scented pomatum which brought women to the very point of fainting, while mine, a jessamine pomade, called forth the compliment of every circle in which I was received. I added that I could not, much to my regret, obey him, 
and that if I had meant to live in slovenliness, I would have become a capuchin, and not an abbe. My answer made him so angry that, three or four days afterwards, he contrived to obtain leave from my grandmother to enter my chamber early in the morning before I was awake, and, approaching my bed on tiptoe with a sharp pair of scissors, he cut off unmercifully all my front hair from one ear to the other. My brother Francois was in the adjoining room and saw him, but he did not interfere as he was delighted at my misfortune. He wore a wig and was very jealous of my beautiful head of hair. Francois was envious through the whole of his life, yet he combined this feeling of envy with friendship. I never could understand him, but this vice of his, like my own vices, must by this time have died of old age. After his great operation, the abbey left my room quietly, but when I woke up shortly afterwards and realized all the horror of this unheard-of execution, my rage and indignation were indeed wrought to the highest pitch. What wild schemes of revenge my brain engendered while, with a looking-glass in my hand, I was groaning over the shameful havoc performed by this audacious priest. At the noise I made, my grandmother hastened to my room, and amidst my brother's laughter, the kind old woman assured me that the priest would never have been allowed to enter my room if she could have foreseen his intention, and she managed to soothe my passion to some extent by confessing that he had overstepped the limits of his right to administer a reproof. But I was determined upon revenge and I went on dressing myself and revolving in my mind the darkest plots. It seemed to me that I was entitled to the most cruel revenge without having anything to dread from the terrors of the law. The theatres being open at that time, I put on a mask to go out, and I went to the advocate Carrare, with whom I had become acquainted at the senator's house, to inquire from him whether I could bring a suit against the priest. He told me that, but a short time since, a family had been ruined for having sheared the moustache of a Sclavonian, a crime not nearly so atrocious as the shearing of all my front locks, and that I had only to give him my instructions to begin a criminal suit against the abbe, which would make him tremble. I gave my consent, and begged that he would tell M. de Malipiero in the evening the reason for which I could not go to his house, for I did not feel any inclination to show myself anywhere until my hair had grown again. I went home and partook with my brother of a repast which appeared rather scanty in comparison to the dinners I had with the old senator. The privation of the delicate and plentiful fare to which His Excellency had accustomed me was most painful, besides all the enjoyments from which I was excluded through the atrocious conduct of the virulent priest who was my godfather. I wept from sheer vexation, 
and my rage was increased by the consciousness that there was in this insult a certain dash of comical fun which threw over me a ridicule more disgraceful in my estimation than the greatest crime i went to bed early and refreshed by ten hours of profound slumber i felt in the morning somewhat less angry but quite as determined to summon the priest before a court i dressed myself with the intention of calling upon my advocate when i received the visit of a skilful hairdresser whom i had seen at madame cantarini's house he told me that he was sent by m de maripiero to arrange my hair so that i could go out as the senator wished me to dine with him on that very day he examined the damage done to my head and said with a smile that if i would trust to his art he would undertake to send me out with an appearance of even greater elegance than i could boast of before and truly when he had done i found myself so good-looking that i considered my thirst for revenge entirely satisfied having thus forgotten the injury i called upon the lawyer to tell him to stay all proceedings and i hastened to m de malipiero's palace where as chance would have it i met the abbe notwithstanding all my joy i could not help casting upon him rather unfriendly looks but not a word was said about what had taken place. The senator noticed everything, and the priest took his leave, most likely with feelings of mortified repentance, for this time I most verily deserved excommunication by the extreme studied elegance of my curling hair. When my cruel godfather had left us, I did not dissemble with M. de Malipiero, I candidly told them that I would look out for another church, and that nothing would induce me to remain under a priest who, in his wrath, could go the length of such proceedings. The wise old man agreed with me, and said that I was quite right. It was the best way to make me do ultimately whatever he liked. In the evening, everyone in our circle, being well aware of what had happened, complimented me and assured me that nothing could be handsomer than my new headdress. I was delighted and was still more gratified when, after a fortnight had lapsed, I found that M. de Malipiero did not broach the subject of my returning to my godfather's church. My grandmother alone constantly urged me to return. But this calm was the harbinger of a storm. When my mind was thoroughly at rest on that subject, M. de Malipiero threw me into the greatest astonishment by suddenly telling me that an excellent opportunity offered itself for me to reappear in the church and to secure ample satisfaction from the abbe. It is my province, added the senator, as president of the confraternity of the Holy Sacrament, to choose the preacher who is to deliver the sermon on the fourth Sunday of this month, which happens to be the second Christmas holiday. I mean to appoint you, and I am certain that the Abbey will not dare to reject my choice. What say you to such a triumphant reappearance?' 
Does it satisfy you? This offer caused me the greatest surprise, for I had never dreamt of becoming a preacher, and I had never been vain enough to suppose that I could write a sermon and deliver it in the church. I told M. de Malipiero that he must surely be enjoying a joke at my expense, but he answered that he had spoken in earnest, and he soon contrived to persuade me and to make me believe that I was born to become the most renowned preacher of our age, as soon as I should have grown fat, a quality which I certainly could not boast of, for at that time I was extremely thin. I had not the shadow of a fear as to my voice or to my elocution, and for the matter of composing my sermon, I felt myself equal to the production of a masterpiece. I told M. de Malipiero that I was ready and anxious to be at home in order to go to work, that, although no theologian, I was acquainted with my subject and would compose a sermon which would take everyone by surprise on account of its novelty. On the following day, when I called upon him, he informed me that the abbe had expressed unqualified delight at the choice made by him and at my readiness in accepting the appointment, but he likewise desired that I should submit my sermon to him as soon as it was written, because the subject belonging to the most sublime theology, he could not allow me to enter the pulpit without being satisfied that I would not utter any heresies. I agreed to this demand, and during the week I gave birth to my masterpiece. I have now that first sermon in my possession, and I cannot help saying that, considering my tender years, I think it a very good one. I could not give an idea of my grandmother's joys. She wept tears of happiness at having a grandson who had become an apostle. She insisted upon my reading my sermon to her, listened to it with her beads in her hands, and pronounced it very beautiful. M. de Malipiero, who had no rosary when I read it to him, was of opinion that it would not prove acceptable to the parson. My text was from Horace. Ploravere suis non respondere favorem spertum meritis. And I deplored the wickedness and ingratitude of men, through which had failed the design adopted by divine wisdom from the redemption of humankind. But M. de Malipiero was sorry that I had taken my text from any heretical poet, although he was pleased that my sermon was not interlarded with Latin quotations. I called upon the priest to read my production, but as he was out I had to wait for his return, and during that time I fell in love with his niece, Angela. She was busy upon some tambour work. I sat down close by her, and telling me that she had long desired to make my acquaintance, she begged me to relate the history of the locks of hair sheared by her venerable uncle. My love for Angela proved fatal to me, because from it sprang two other love affairs which, in their turn, gave birth to a great many others, and caused me finally to renounce the church as a profession. 
but let us proceed quietly and not encroach upon future events on his return home the abbe found me with his niece who was about my age and he did not appear to be angry i gave him my sermon he read it over and told me that it was a beautiful academical dissertation but unfit for a sermon from the pulpit and he added i will give you a sermon written by myself which i have never delivered you will commit it to memory and I promise to let everybody suppose that it is of your own composition. I thank you, very reverend father, but I will preach my own sermon, or none at all. At all events, you shall not preach such a sermon as this in my church. You can talk the matter over with M. de Malipiero. In the meantime, I will take my work to the censorship and to his eminence the patriarch, and if it is not accepted, I shall have it printed. All very well, young man. The patriarch will coincide with me. In the evening I related my discussion with the parson before all the guests of M. de Malipiero. The reading of my sermon was called for, and it was praised by all. They lauded me for having with proper modesty refrained from quoting the Holy Fathers of the Church, whom at my age I could not be supposed to have sufficiently studied, and the ladies particularly admired me because there was no Latin in it but the text from Horace, who, although a great libertine himself, has written very good things. A niece of the patriarch, who was present that evening, promised to prepare it her uncle in my favor, as I had expressed my intention to appeal to him. But M. de Malipiero desired me not to take any steps in the matter until I had seen him on the following day, and I submissively bowed to his wishes. When I called at his mansion the next day, he sent for the priest who soon made his appearance. As he knew well what he had been sent for, he immediately launched out into a very long discourse, which I did not interrupt, but the moment he had concluded his list of objections, I told him that there could not be two ways to decide the question, that the patriarch would either approve or disapprove my sermon. In the first case, I added, I can pronounce it in your church, and no responsibility can possibly fall upon your shoulders. In the second, I must, of course, give way. The abbe was struck by my determination, and he said, Do not go to the patriarch. I accept your sermon. I only request you to change your text. Horace was a villain. Why do you quote Seneca, Tertullian, Origen, and Bethius? They were all heretics, and must, consequently, be considered by you as worse wretches than Horace, who, after all, never had the chance of becoming a Christian. However, as I saw it would please M. de Malipiero, I finally consented to accept, as a substitute for mine, a text offered by the Abbe, although it did not suit in any way the spirit of my production and in order to get an opportunity for a visit to his niece, I gave him my manuscript, saying that I would call for it the next day. 
my vanity prompted me to send a copy to dr gozzi but the good man caused me much amusement by returning it and writing that i must have gone mad and that if i were allowed to deliver such a sermon from the pulpit i would bring dishonor upon myself as well as upon the man who had educated me i cared but little for his opinion and on the appointed day i delivered my sermon in the church of the holy sacrament in the presence of the best society of venice i received much applause and every one predicted that i would certainly become the first preacher of our century as no young ecclesiastic of fifteen had ever been known to preach as well as i had done it is customary for the faithful to deposit their offerings for the preacher in a purse which is handed to them for that purpose the sexton who empty it of its contents found in it more than fifty sequins and several billets doux to the great scandal of the weaker brethren an anonymous note amongst them the writer of which i thought i had guessed led me into a mistake which i think better not to relate this rich harvest in my great penury caused me to entertain a serious thoughts of becoming a preacher and i confided my intention to the parson requesting his assistance to carry it into execution this gave me the privilege of visiting at his house every day and i improved the opportunity of conversing with angela for whom my love was daily increasing but angela was virtuous she did not object to my love but she wished me to renounce the church and to marry her in spite of my infatuation for her i could not make up my mind to such a step and i went on seeing her and courting her in the hope that she would alter her decision the priest who had at last confessed his admiration for my first sermon asked me some time afterwards to prepare another for st joseph's day with an invitation to deliver it on the nineteenth of march seventeen forty one i composed it and the abbe spoke of it with enthusiasm but fate had decided that i should never preach but once in my life it is a sad tale unfortunately for me very true which some persons are cruel enough to consider very amusing young and rather self-conceited i fancied that it was not necessary for me to spend much time in committing my sermon to memory being the author i had all the ideas contained in my work classified in my mind and it did not seem to me within the range of possibilities that i could forget what i had written perhaps i might not remember the exact words of a sentence but i was at liberty to replace them by other expressions as good and as i never happened to be at a loss or to be struck dumb when i spoke in society it was not likely that such an untoward accident would befall me before an audience amongst whom i did not know any one who could intimidate me and cause me suddenly to lose the faculty of reason or of speech i therefore took my pleasure as usual being satisfied with reading my sermon morning and evening in order to impress it upon my memory which until then had never betrayed me the nineteenth of march came and on that eventful day at four o'clock in the afternoon i was to ascend to the pulpit 
but believing myself quite secure and thoroughly master of my subject i had not the moral courage to deny myself the pleasure of dining with count montreal who was then residing with me and who had invited the patrician barozzi engaged to be married to his daughter after the easter holidays i was still enjoying myself with my fine company when the sexton of the church came in to tell me that they were waiting for me in the vestry with a full stomach and my head rather heated i took my leave ran to the church and entered the pulpit i went through the exordium with credit to myself and i took breathing time but scarcely had i pronounced the first sentences of the narration before i forgot what i was saying what i had to say and in my endeavours to proceed i fairly wandered from my subject and i lost myself entirely i was still more discomforted by a half-repressed murmur of the audience as my deficiency appeared evident several persons left the church others began to smile i lost all presence of mind and every hope of getting out of the scrape i could not say whether i feigned a fainting fit or whether i truly swooned all i know is that i fell down on the floor of the pulpit striking my head against the wall with an inward prayer for annihilation two of the parish clerks carried me to the vestry and after a few moments without addressing a word to anyone i took my cloak and my hat and went home to lock myself in my room i immediately dressed myself in a short coat after the fashion of travelling priests i packed a few things in a trunk obtained some money from my grandmother and took my departure of padua where i intended to pass my third examination i reached padua at midnight and went to dr gozzi's house but i did not feel the slightest temptation to mention to him my unlucky adventure i remained in padua long enough to prepare myself for the doctor's degree which i intended to take the following year and after easter i returned to venice where my misfortune was already forgotten but preaching was out of the question and when any attempt was made to induce me to renew my efforts i manfully kept to my determination never to ascend the pulpit again on the eve of ascension day m manzoni introduced me to a young courtesan who was at that time in great repute at venice and was nicknamed cavamacchia because her father had been a scourer this name vexed her a great deal she wished to be called Priati, which was her family name, but it was all in vain, and the only concession her friends would make was to call her by her Christian name of Juliet. She had been introduced to fashionable notice by the Marquis de San Vitali, a nobleman from Parma, who had given her one hundred thousand ducats for her favors. Her beauty was then the talk of everybody in Venice, and it was fashionable to call upon her. To converse with her, and especially to be admitted into her circle, was considered a great boon. As I shall have to mention her several times in the course of my history, my readers will, I trust, allow me to enter into some particulars about her previous life. 
Juliet was only fourteen years of age when her father sent her one day to the house of a Venetian nobleman, Marco Mauazzo, with a coat which he had cleaned for him. He thought her very beautiful in spite of the dirty rags in which she was dressed, and he called to see her at her father's shop with a friend of his, the celebrated advocate Bastien Uccelli, who, struck by the romantic and cheerful nature of Juliet still more than by her beauty and fine figure, gave her an apartment, made her study music, and kept her as his mistress. At the time of the fair, Bastien took her with him to various public places of resort. Everywhere she attracted general attention and secured the admiration of every lover of the sex. She made rapid progress in music, and at the end of six months she felt sufficient confidence in herself to sign an engagement with a theatrical manager who took her to Vienna to give her a castrato part in one of Metastasio's operas. The advocate had previously seated her to a wealthy Jew who, after giving her splendid diamonds, left her also. In Vienna, Juliet appeared on the stage, and her beauty gained for her an admiration which she would never have conquered by her very inferior talent. But the constant crowd of adorers who went to worship the goddess, having sounded her exploits rather too loudly, the august Maria Theresa objected to this new creed being sanctioned in her capital, and the beautiful actress received an order to quit Vienna forthwith. Count Spada offered her his protection and brought her back to Venice, but she soon left for Padua, where she had an engagement. In that city she kindled the fire of love in the breast of Marquis San Vitali, but the marchioness, having caught her once in her own box, and Juliet having acted disrespectfully to her, she slapped her face, and the affair having caused a good deal of noise, Juliet gave up the stage altogether. She came back to Venice, where, made conspicuous by her banishment from Vienna, she could not fail to make her fortune. Expulsion from Vienna for this class of women had become a title to fashionable favor, and when there was a wish to depreciate a singer or a dancer, it was said of her that she had not been sufficiently prized to be expelled from Vienna. After her return, her first lover was Stefano Querini de Papozzis, but in the spring of 1740, the Marquis de San Vitali came to Venice and soon carried her off. It was indeed difficult to resist this delightful marquis. His first present to the fair lady was the sum of one hundred thousand ducats, and to prevent his being accused of weakness or of lavish prodigality, he loudly proclaimed that the present could scarcely make up for the insult Juliet had received from his wife, an insult, however, which the courtesan never admitted as she felt that there would be humiliation in such an acknowledgment, and she always professed to admire with gratitude her lover's generosity. She was right. The admission of the blow received would have left a stain upon her charms, and how much more to her taste to allow those charms to be prized at such a high figure. 
it was in the year seventeen forty one that manzoni introduced me to his new priny as a young ecclesiastic who was beginning to make a reputation i found her surrounded by seven or eight well-seasoned admirers who were burning at her feet the incense of their flattery she was carelessly reclining on a sofa near querini i was much struck with her appearance she eyed me from head to foot as if i had been exposed for sale and telling me with the air of a princess that she was not sorry to make my acquaintance she invited me to take a seat i began then in my turn to examine her closely and deliberately and it was an easy matter as the room although small was lighted with at least twenty wax candles juliet was then in her eighteenth year the freshness of her complexion was dazzling but the carnation tint of her cheeks the vermilion of her lips and the dark very narrow curve of her eyebrows impressed me as being produced by art rather than nature her teeth two rows of magnificent pearls made one overlook the fact that her mouth was somewhat too large and whether from habit or because she could not help it she seemed to be ever smiling her bosom hid under a light gauze invited the desires of love yet i did not surrender to her charms her bracelets and the rings which covered her fingers did not prevent me from noticing that her hand was too large and too fleshy and in spite of her carefully hiding her feet i judged by a tell-tale slipper lying close by her dress that they were well proportioned to the height of her figure a proportion which is unpleasant not only to the chinese and spaniards but likewise to every man of refined taste we want a tall woman to have a small foot and certainly it is not a modern taste for holofernes of old was of the same opinion otherwise he would not have thought judith so charming its sandalid ejus rapuerunt oculus ejus altogether i found her beautiful but when i compared her beauty and the price of one hundred thousand ducats paid for it i marvelled at my remaining so cold and at my not being tempted to give even one sequin for the privilege of making from nature a study of the charms which her dress concealed from my eyes. End of chapter 4, part A